Hello, everyone, and welcome to United We Stand. I'm your host, Jim Feeney, and this show airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern with 20 minutes of hopefully insightful commentary about the world around us and how we build a stronger, more sustainable America. You can also find these episodes as podcasts at jimfeeney.com, that's F-I-N-I, and subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts. So I get a lot of questions from my subscribers and others, uh, but the most frequent one is probably the most obvious. What the hell is locally grown government? Well, it's an idea that's been germinating in my brain for the better part of two decades. Uh, And in the earlier days, I gave long-winded answers, mashing up concepts like bottom-up government and modified federalism, sustainability and middle ground politics, etc. Certainly locally grown is about all of those things, but it's also about simplicity, the shortest line between two points. It's about Occam's razor, named after the 14th century theologian William of Occam, who stated, the simplest solution is almost always the best. It's a problem-solving principle, arguing that simplicity is better than complexity. I try to do my best to be a serial simplifier because I saw its tremendous value that uh, simplification unlocked when we deployed Lean to build my company uh, in Servio. People who want to keep power tend to use complexity to justify their existence so they can be translators to the average Joe who will then depend on them. This is an extremely powerful political weapon used liberally by many of our so-called leaders but it was famously used by the Catholic Church for nearly 1,500 years when they required Bibles to be printed in Latin and the masses uh, to be uh, spoken in Latin. The hoi polloi didn't know Latin, obviously. They spoke their native languages. So all I can say is thank God for Gutenberg for inventing the printing press and churning out all those Bibles translated in native languages. So it makes weird sense that over the years, I became a big fan of the sort of simple Japanese form of poetry called haiku. It's basically five syllables on one line, seven syllables on another line, and five syllables on the third line. So, and these are syllables, not words. I find it's a brilliant tool to simplify a concept to its essence. I've written over 400 original haikus to, to express concepts in many areas, Uh, including religion, politics, sports, business, music, love. In fact, each chapter of my book begins with one of my haikus. So you may be thinking, uh, Jim's just spent a better part of three minutes and he didn't answer the question that he asked. So what is locally grown government? Well, the haiku beginning my chapter in my book answers that question. The butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker is locally grown. That's a haiku, folks. So next time you're wondering, now you know. So let's dive into this question in more detail. America's Constitution spends a lot of time delineating federal powers. As the Tenth Amendment confirms, powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. The people are the citizens living in America's cities and towns. If the premise of my book is rebalancing our government towards more local rule. It's only fair that we spend some time talking about about what we mean by local. I think to most folks, it's the city or town where we grew up or currently reside in. 
I grew up in Lunenburg, Massachusetts, a sleepy little town first settled in 1718. It was surrounded by lots of other similarly small towns, farming towns. Massachusetts is a collection of 351 cities and towns. Being a primary geography in America's founding, Massachusetts governing constructs, you know, became models for a lot of other colonies to follow. States subdivided into counties and then cities and towns, very similar to how it was in Great Britain at the time. The power relationship between uh, towns, counties, and states was often defined in either state constitutions or statutes. In Massachusetts, cities and towns had much more autonomy than counties. County police departments don't exist. The situation is quite different in my current home state of Florida, where county government is quite powerful, usually exceeding the power of the cities and towns contained in it. In addition to the traditional functions, the county handles inspections, collects all taxes, has a robust police force, run the, runs the schools, and many more function. Boston is one of our oldest cities, and the county is the city. There is no other city or town in Suffolk County other than Boston. The state abolished the last of any administrative county functions in 1999. In its earliest days, Boston expanded by annexing neighboring towns like Dorchester, Brighton, and Mattapan. But early on, the state stepped in to stop further, further annexation in its effort to control the powers of cities and towns. By the mid-1800s, the country was growing at such a fast rate, demographically and geographically, there were many political and jurisdictional collisions at the time. Then along came a landmark ruling in 1868 from the uh, Federal Eighth Circuit Court, led at that time by Justice John Dillon, that affirmed the following. Municipal incorporations owe their origin to and derive their powers and rights wholly from the legislature. It presents to them the breath of life, without which they cannot exist. As it creates, so it may destroy. If it may destroy, it may abridge and control. This became known as Dillon's Rule. At the time, many states and municipalities followed the theory of home rule, whereby jurisdictions within the state could exercise significant autonomy for governance as long as it was within the bounds of the state and federal constitution. Uh, several state states' constitutions explicitly affirmed home rule. Then in 1871, the Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court wrote in a concurring opinion that local government is a matter of absolute right, and the state cannot take it away. The Supreme Court has not ruled defin definitively between these two decisions, but has since upheld parts of Dillon's rule while permitting states to write legislation allowing any city or town that's a target for being annexed into a larger city or town. It guarantees them the right to accept or reject that annexation, so they just can't be uh, annexed against their will. Today, about 40 of our 50 states observe Dillon's rule in some form, while 10 states have written home rule into their state constitutions. So it's, and it's no surprise to me that my home state of Massachusetts is one of those 10 home rule states. So, but my research doesn't reveal any major patterns with regard to Dillon's rules and the states. But in his uh, 1993 book, Cities Without Suburbs, author and former Albuquerque, New Mexico Mayor David Rusk says the thing that matters most is, is a city's elasticity. Those with the ability to expand their borders which means they're elastic, 
tend to be more affluent. And with less crime and higher bond ratings, cities, cities like Birmingham, Alabama, are inelastic. And Charlotte, North Carolina, is elastic. This kind of illustrates the point. Birmingham is surrounded by 34 other municipalities in Jefferson County, Alabama, that are smaller but more affluent suburbs with better public infrastructure. During the 1950s to the 1990s, many families fled the problems of inner cities for a better life in suburbia. None of these wealthier suburbs wanted to be annexed by Birmingham, and the state permits Dillon's rule at the county level. Counterexamples of this are Charlotte, North Carolina, and Austin, Texas, which have grown tremendously over the past decades and met their growth needs by annexing adjacent towns. North Carolina and Texas are both hybrid states that have elements of Dillon's rule and home rule. They encourage borders to accommodate the economic growth of both these cities. This provides more land to build homes for new citizens moving in. It increases the tax base, saves money on duplicate infrastructure, and keeps cities more diverse. These are places where people want to work and live. Today, Charlotte and Austin have two-thirds higher median income, one-third lower employment, and half the poverty rate of Birmingham. The simple takeaway is that bad state laws that make city borders unchangeable are at a disadvantage. Well, we need to take a break, and we'll be right back with more. We stand. I'm your host, Jim Feeney, and we're talking about the meaning of local within the context of the geography and political subdivisions in the United States. In the first segment, we ended with the discussion of how municipalities formed in the United States over its long history and where cities that grew in population and economic activity were the ones where state constitutions supported the idea that cities and towns could merge to create economy of scale. This is uh, sort of the elasticity principle of, uh, of towns. What did the cities that were kind of hobbled by the inability to expand, what are some of the ways that they can address their plight? Well, let's start with lobbying their state legislatures to make the necessary changes. Short of that, it's up to a county or a region to plan how merging works out to everyone's mutual benefit. In a 2018 Economist article in The Economist magazine, why American cities are so weirdly shaped. Uh, it cites Pittsburgh as one of the 130 cities and towns in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, that worked with its neighbors to cooperate on joint projects to make the area a growing technology hub. It also describes how Louisville, Kentucky, merged with the other 92 cities and towns in Jefferson County to create this greater Louisville idea. A great way to understand what a city's natural borders look like is by looking at a satellite image at night. Wherever you see a hub of lights, well, that's a city. Uh, when you put a political map overlay on that satellite image, they don't match up. Greater Los Angeles, for example, operates economically as a unified region mostly, and yet there are 17 different congressmen, U.S. congressmen and women, that represent the county. The shapes of the districts are odd, of course, due to gerrymandering for political advantage. Uh, and currently, there isn't too much that can be done about this, as the, as the U.S. Constitution explicitly provides for the House of Representatives to be allocated according to population. 
but maybe a constitutional amendment can be proposed to regulate this partisan but important political gerrymandering process. Each of the 435 U.S. congressional districts contains about 711,000 people, and there are 17 congressional districts among that total that comprise greater Los Angeles. Another way to express the idea of local is through the construct of the 383 Metropolitan Statistical Areas, or MSAs, for the United States as defined by the U.S. Office of Management and Budget. An MSA is a geographical region with a relatively large population density and close economic integration throughout the area. They're not legally incorporated municipalities, but rather they're sort of an analytical construct used by various government agencies to better understand economics and demographics. At the center of an MSA is usually a large city like New York or L.A. that's the economic hub of the region. Some MSAs have more than one major city, like Minneapolis, St. Paul, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. The uh, Office of Management and Budget also tracks economic data for lower-level MSA components called core-based statistical areas. These are defined as clusters of counties or equivalents of those, which are at least 50% of the people, where at least 50% of the people reside in urban areas of at least 10,000 folks. Not to further complicate matters, I'm sorry about this, but the OMB also delineates 536 micropolitan statistical areas as a cluster of counties with at least one emergent, uh, urban area where the population is between 10,000 and 50,000. So as you can see, there's a you know, there, there's a lot here and a lot of different ways that we define local. The point is that we already have uh, in place the concepts of local entities larger than the thousands of incorporated cities and towns and smaller than states that could provide a solution to the dilemma of how a city expands beyond its, its, its existing borders to maintain economic viability. Another phenomenon uh, that's changing the nature of our local cities and towns described in the 2009 book, The Big Sort, Why the Clustering of Like-Minded America is Tearing Us Apart. The author, Bill Bishop, talks about how Americans are self-sorting themselves into cities and towns and even neighborhoods that are culturally and ideologically similar. Parents tend to want to live in places with other like-minded citizens with churches and schools and institutions they can count on to teach their children in a manner they approve of. Certainly, America affords its citizens the freedom to live and associate wherever and whomever they want. However, the author, Mr. Bishop, argues that the consequences of all of us living in our own little echo chambers is that we're increasingly intolerant of dissenting views. This could be catastrophic to our democratic republic. We already see this happening now with the polarization of our citizens, which is exacerbated by intellectually cloistered media that feeds the intolerance. In The Economist magazine, they address this phenomenon in a June 19, 2008 article called The Big Sort. And I'm quoting from The Economist. When a group is ideologically homogeneous, its members tend to grow more extreme. Even clever, fair-minded people are not immune. Cass Sunstein and David Schadke, two academics, uh, found that Republican-appointed judges vote more conservatively when sitting on a panel with other Republicans than when sitting with Democrats. Democratic judges become more liberal uh, when on the bench with fellow Democrats. Voters in landslide districts tend to elect more extreme members of Congress. Moderates who might otherwise run for office decide not to. Debates turn into shouting matches. 
bitterly partisan lawmakers cannot reach the necessary consensus to fix long-term problems such as the tottering pension and health care systems in the country. I mean, these, this was in 2008, keep in mind, and they've really pinpointed where a lot of these demographic vectors are colliding right now in this sort of crisis that we're, we're facing. So can it be true that Americans really are choosing not to get along with each other? I don't think so. As the country has grown and changed demographically, people have made the best choices for them. If they, has, if they have kids, it's natural for them to want them being raised in an environment with, that they agree with. However, the danger is that we shield each other from the very diversity that's driven evolution for millions of years. In its earlier forms, our cities and towns were more mixed and egalitarian, where kids of all backgrounds and uh, economic backgrounds went to the same public schools. I attended a public school like that. So maybe if we fix the nature of where we live, town by town, the country can heal the political virus of ideological polarization. Maybe it starts with education. With all the money that, that would pour into local coffers from the sort of recommended in, increased level of federal budget transfers that I propose in my book, we can improve public schools so they'll be more attractive to wealthier citizens who might otherwise send their kids to private schools. Maybe we should consider a constitutional amendment that creates a rational and fair process for determining congressional districts that encourages diversity rather than leaving it up to state legislatures uh, who gerrymander away diversity when their party is in the majority. There are important national organizations of uh, local government that are working on common problems like this and sharing best practices. So we're not alone in the wilderness, folks. The Big Seven is, uh, as they're referred, is a group of nonprofit organizations comprised of state and local government uh, officials. These groups include the National League of Cities, Council of State Governments, National Governors Association, and the National Conference of State Legislatures. These are, they're constantly lobbying the federal government on issues that affect their local interests. As locally grown government becomes a tangible movement, working on the solutions uh, that I've outlined in my book, I expect there to be a natural affinity with these organizations that are doing this work. So, how do you think about your status as a citizen of your hometown, your state, and the United States? How do you think about what your local means? I think for most folks, this is a question they probably haven't thought of before. However, our Constitution requires that we do think about this because it spreads power amongst those three levels of local, state, and federal. And we pay taxes and live by the respective laws at each of those government levels. The beauty of bottom-up government uh, that our founders created is that it embraces the common-sense fact of diversity. We're a huge, beautiful nation that contains people of all races and cultures and faiths who, like my grandparents, immigrated here for the same reason, freedom and opportunity. They were leaving countries with less freedom and opportunity. Another critical thing the founders gave us that we don't often think about is choice. Choice and freedom are synonyms, in my opinion. If we don't like where we live, we can move and find different laws, different people, different geography, different culture, different food. I don't know about you, but I love that. Variety is the spice of life. My worst nightmare would be a huge country forced to live under the same rules that affect every part of your life. That would be boring and dangerous. I don't want to live like the robotic brainwashed humans like in so many dystopic movies, or maybe China and other authoritarian countries. 
We need to ignore the loud voices in this country that want to divide us. They're trying to seduce us to trade freedom for the illusion of security. This is the time for the silent majority of the middle ground and independent American citizens to stand up and be heard and reject this Faustian bargain with the devil. Our voices need to be louder than the dividers. This is no time to sit on the fence and think that you're insulated from this threat. It's time to unite, stand up, and be counted. Well, that's my show for today, folks. Over the next few episodes, I'll be bringing in guests and take listener calls to start the civil discussion that we so desperately need to find strong middle ground in this country. Uh, If you want to continue the conversation, please subscribe to my website at www.jimfeeney.com. That's J-I-M-F-I-N-I.com. And you can receive my regular newsletter and comment on it with others. And in the meantime, remember, united we stand, divided we fall, each one for the other, and all for all. (laughs) 